You're listening to Were You Still Talking? Hey, welcome to another episode of Were You Still Talking? This is Joel Albrecht, and on the Zoom I have Daniel John Carey. He's been an author shepherd, helping writers get their manuscripts ready for publications. He's been a ghost co-author on many nonfiction books by a variety of authors. He has written two books recently, Dream Another Dream, Reclaiming and Reimagining Your Life, and Dream Your World, which we're going to talk about also. Uh, he is... Is, as well as that, he's also the author of Plant-Based Regenerative Nutrition, How to Prevent and Re- uh, Reverse Common Chronic and Degenerative Illnesses. And uh, I was reading his history, and the reason that he wrote that book, I think, is, is pretty amazing. The, he actually sent me so much stuff that I, I don't even know if I can get into it all in the intro. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast welcome welcome in how are you i'm good nice being here i'm uh getting warmer it's been cold in here in la but we're having a sunny day finally so did you actually have any flooding like on your street or in your did your house did your roof leak or anything like no but friends of mine had um their basement flooded there's not many houses here i guess basements aren't that common but their basement flooded and they didn't know it could flood but there was so much rain that it that's what happened. Um, there's definitely been massive, uh, like streets where there's like a foot of water and stuff like that, but nothing that around here that I know of that's considered flooding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, cool. it's. I I know when it rains in Los Angeles, it does. It you get the torrential rains. We'll get we'll get that amount of rain in like two or three weeks that you'll get in a day. So. It's pretty nuts. <laughs> yeah, that's been going on since more than ever. Even people I know who've lived here their entire lives, they, they say this is, they've never experienced it. Yeah, and that's what all the news media is saying. It's always interesting to hear it from, from a real person that's actually experiencing it. So how, I know it's probably a long story, but how did you get into... Um, to writing, you wrote a book about screenwriting. You have a workshop about screenwriting. How did all that, um, how did you get into that path of writing? Um, when I was younger, I, I was going to, uh, well, when I was 19, I started writing a screenplay. I'd never writ- I've never seen a screenplay. I never uh, knew what, I, I, I just never, and I kind of was making up what it would look like, and it was all wrong. But um, eventually, I went to school for other. I went to school for journalism and graphic design and other things. And um, I ended up working in journalism. And I wrote the morning news for KCRW here. It's on the internet. It's one of the largest public radio stations in the U.S. But it's global because a lot of people from all over the world listen to the music they play. I but, miss it. I miss it terribly. I yeah. lived there for eleven years. Uh, yeah, I, well, I should go. I should listen to it online. Yeah, ICRW.com, and they have the yeah. app. I use the app all the time. But um, then when I was there, I was also started writing again, and I wrote the screenplay. And I started going to a writers group at Universal Studios where we would go on the lot, and um, that was it was supposed to be like a writers workshop, but it was more like you would go and there would be guest speakers like producers and 
directors and writers and stuff. And um, so some of the people from that group started a separate actual writer's workshop where we would read each other's work. And um, I got involved in that and helping to run it. And there was like 20 or 30 people. And I finished a script back then. And then um, I wrote an article that I submitted to an entertainment magazine that used to be here called Premier Magazine. It was a national publication, but their office was in West L.A. And I submitted to them. And then somehow someone who worked there knew this producer who worked in the same office complex for um, Sovereign Pictures. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. produced some pretty big films um, back then. And then that producer called me and asked me if I had ever done any um, script reading for and. I didn't, but he had me over to his office and he started having me read scripts and give him, he would ask me what I thought of them. And um, eventually I had to start like writing down what I thought to submit a document, the coverage it's called, so they could read that. And then um, I got into reading for a couple other independent producers who would also have me read books that they optioned to see if they, what I thought of those books. And it was interesting that they're just, asking my opinion but i eventually i worked at um various newspapers and magazines around la and i was also started um inter not intern but uh i joined publishers marketing association and i ended up starting to help people write books and i got involved with writing helping well basically sort of writing their books but for doctors and nutritionists and people like that and also recipe books and um while also working at news weeklies you might remember la reader oh yeah yeah, yeah I worked, absolutely I worked there and then they got bought out by new times la which is this corporate company out of it was out of uh arizona and they went around buying news weeklies all over the country so i um they they bought la reader and then i was working for new times la it was very corporate it just it was completely different than what it was but I ended up working um, for Backstage West, which is the actors publication here that is also no longer, I think they have a website now, but it would come out every week. Um, so, and did some work for the Hollywood Reporter and which is owned by the same company. And then um, I started writing, got involved in more scripts and writing scripts and also helping people write scripts and polish their scripts back then. And um, I wasn't in a writing group then, but I wrote this one script and then it started getting handed around Hollywood by some pretty super famous people. And uh, this one superstar guy was looking at it and considering starring in it. And then this superstar actress found out about it. And so she said she would be in it if he was in it. And then he didn't want to be in it because he didn't want to play another doctor again. And then so she dropped out and then nothing happened. And then I wrote another script and then that guy financing. And then that fell apart because the producers started suing each other. Hollywood's crazy like that. Oh, that is just, it, yeah, that's so Hollywood. I don't think people realize how many scripts that happens to. And even big scripts. I mean, there's, you know, there's the big scripts of, that make it to movies 10 years after they start working on them. And that's why. Those those are the reasons. It's not that they're rewriting it over and over. It's that kind of stuff. It's that kind of just crazy shit like that. Yeah, it could get picked up by like 
somebody famous wants to star in it they get attached and then like the writer who wrote it originally wrote it um has under contract to like do one or two rewrites and then if that the producers aren't satisfied they could bring in another writer so then they bring in another writer and then that writer rewrites it to restylize it for some superstar so that it's like he has his scenes that like he's popular for doing certain types of reactions and stuff and they rewrite it and then that star drops out because they they have a, <laughs> so nuts. a conflict a scheduling conflict or something or they figure out a way to get out of it because they no longer want to be in it or something bigger comes up or something and then um then you're left with the script that had been restylized for this one writer and then after a while like it's been options so they the option to they have like two years to make it or a year and a half to make it but if they don't go into production then the rights go back to the writer the original writer and then people don't realize all this goes on then that original writer could take the original script but he doesn't own the material that was rewritten for the star and the producers so he has his original script again and then he could try to resell it or try to make it himself or herself or um themselves or whatever you want to say <laughs> but uh yeah it that game goes on um what's that tom hanks movie run run oh uh, forrest gump forrest gump, forrest I, gump. I heard that was around for like nine years or longer before it got made stuff like that happens um and then yeah so i i had that happen to me with that one script and then um there are a couple scripts and then i didn't write for a while and i got burnt out i ended up working on different tv shows and movies and stuff i got really super busy being a photo double and a stand-in and a hand model people oh, laugh you know i it's i laugh but i also i'm always very curious about that kind of stuff hand like, models yeah like hand modeling did you um, did you have to wear gloves like George in the Seinfeld episode? No, no, I'm just kidding. But, but it, um, it's it sounds kind of interesting. Did well, you do like cut-ins if, um, for hands for people's hands and stuff in movies? Yeah, or? a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I also did catalog work. And you people laugh, but you can make good money if you have really nice hands. Mine are getting old, so I don't get work anymore. But. Um, you know one person finds out or this casting director that you're involved with knew that you worked on this commercial and they used your hands or whatever the first time it happened i was a friend of mine knew a photographer who was doing the catalog for a car company for like ford or something and all their cars they had to do catalogs back then and um they needed a hand model and i got called in and i was impressed by how much money i made but it's like <laughs> holding the steering wheel touching the button you know adjusting the mirror putting the seat belt in and they take photos of each one to use in the and so i did that and then i just started getting other work and um yeah <laughs> my biggest my biggest curiosity is how long does a session like that take when you're doing a hand model session for a car the catalog is it a full day thing, shoot or is it the catalog thing took two days because two days. They had like two or three or four different cars, and then they mm -hmm. had to have photos for each car with each radio and seatbelt and like opening the trunk and like opening the doorknob. And, you know, it's and it has to be lit and you have to be at a certain angle and it like it gets really technical. And then I got called 
um, the same guy who got me that job, um, that was, I got on Terminator 2, the movie Terminator 2. I've heard of that. <laughs> yeah. With Arnold. <laughs> and they needed a hand double, but they also needed, I ended up being a photo double and also doing other things on that movie. So and, you were a photo double for Arnold? No, not you for were, Arnold, for the kidding. other guy. <laughs> um, oh, was, um, the other guy, uh, now I forget his name, really good actor, though. Yeah. I always forget his the name. The T-1000. Yeah, and I've seen yeah. him. It's like, hey, we've talked a few times since then, but um, I always forget his name. I have no idea why. But he's also from Ohio, where I'm from. Oh, um, interesting. And then, but I did, was doing all that, and then um, eventually I started going to... Oh, I had an arm injury in 2014 and um, I had already like pulled out my old scripts and I was rewriting them and I was writing another script and I had it. I was got injured on the set of Teen Wolf. I was supposed to play a doctor and the actress fell and I caught her really fast and it snapped the inside of my arm. Oh, no. And I ended up oh. in the hospital. I had to have my arm put back together. And um, so I started writing more then because there was like a year of having to relearn how to use my fingers and my hand and my wrist and my arm and um, a lot of pain and dark days. And so when that was going on, I started attending a workshop here in Venice um, called Beyond Baroque Screenwriting Workshop. And I was polishing a script then and they had a bunch of, they had too many people in the workshop and they wanted to start another workshop. And I had already like been helping other people write their screenplays and still like sometimes reading scripts for producers and polishing scripts sometimes where before for low budget movies and um attending this workshop and uh rewriting my old scripts and writing a new script and um then they had so many people that they asked me some of them asked me like what don't you i didn't know it was going to be like me <laughs> to <laughs> yeah. start this other workshop but um that's how it happened sort of and then I found a location and we started having the other workshop and my screenwriting tribe, I named it. And I kept taking notes every workshop. I would take notes about script problems. And I already had my own list that I had been keeping for years. S problems that are in scripts and how to fix them, like a paragraph here of what the problem is, and then a few paragraphs or one paragraph or even a sentence of how to fix the problem. And I made this list and it got up to like hundreds of pages of how to fix a script. And so I ended up, because I already in, had been involved in writing a bunch of books for other people mm -hmm. and helping them write their books. And um, I stopped doing that. And I started writing my own books. And I wrote the Screenwriting Tribe workshop book. And it came out. And then I started getting messages that it was being used as a textbook in film schools. Oh, I see. You didn't realize that was, well, you, no. I'm, I've gotten your other two books, which we'll talk about, and they're written like textbooks. So this, yeah. your, your writing style kind of, it lends itself to that. It, it makes sense to me. Maybe because I yeah. used to help doctors write their books. And I spent a lot of time at the UCLA writing, the UCLA Medical Library. And the people who used to work there thought I was a doctor. And I was there all the time, like researching stuff for doctors to make sure their books were correct. And the people who worked there started calling me doctor. Doctor, we're going to close in 10 minutes. We just went in. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you just <laughs> went with it? That's okay. I didn't correct them. I, <laughs> I did. Like, uh, but I, yeah, well, I wrote this. The first book 
the first version of the screenwriting book. And then when I found out it started being used as a textbook in film schools, I was like, I better rewrite that thing because I didn't, it wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. So I spent another year just writing it and it, I tripled the amount of information. And now it's like, I don't know how many pages, 600 pages. And that came out in 2020 um, while I was running my workshop. And my workshop grew really quickly. I thought it was going to be like 60 people, but <laughs> there were 60 people like the first week. And then, um, yeah, it just grew. And now it's been going for almost seven years and it's 1,047 people or something like that who are members. But every Sunday we have a workshop in the morning that we started and during the pandemic, I took it on a Zoom. Before the pandemic, there were so many people that I would have a Sunday morning workshop and a Sunday evening workshop. Sunday morning was at a bookstore that was closed on Sunday morning. And they let me use the bookshop to use to run the workshop there. And um, I paid rent for them. And then at the Sunday evening one was at a coffee house where I rented the back room that they have this performance space behind the coffee house. And I would rent that. And we had the workshop there. and um. That's where our friend Nick Pemble <laughs> attended. Oh, and nice, nice. Actor. Yeah, they're yeah. In, in Oregon. But um, then the pandemic happened. I took it on the Zoom, and um, it kind of died down. A lot of people don't like Zoom, and there's yeah. And so it is yeah. In November, I took I started the live workshop back up in the morning, where we meet at the coffee house back room in the morning on Sunday, and then Sunday evening it's still on Zoom. Because there's people now from all over the country, and sometimes people from out of the from out of the country who participate. We've had people from India and Australia and Poland and stuff participate on the Zoom workshop. So I do that, and um, and then my screenplays. I keep getting like attention. There's this one script. <laughs> I uh, wrote a script that I made up about this religious cult. It started out as a, um, I wanted to write a script about a bunch of vegan, <laughs> I'm vegan, but there's uh -huh. a lot of very unusual vegans, but. Um, <laughs> okay. So yeah. it was going to be a, a vegan cult. A it vegan, was, it was no, going to be, a, be a, a soap opera sort of about vegans who follow this char charismatic vegan weirdo. That totally sounds um, like a Netflix Netflix show right there. I I just have to say, as I was writing it, it started turning into turning darker and darker, and I switched it to like 1960 and a half in Ben in Farm Town, and it's a religious cult, and the young, pregnant, abused wife of the middle-aged preacher who runs the town wants to escape and. So my script, it's called Outside Forces. They're warned about the outside forces that will corrupt their minds. And um, so that script is, keeps placing in. It's been like top on the Austin Film Festival screenwriting competition and like several other competitions. And it just got chosen as one of the best unproduced screenplays by writers over 40. <laughs> that's that's an interesting category but congratulations yeah. that's, a few weeks ago. that's awesome and that is awesome i thought i it would sell or get optioned and it still uh -huh. has i don't still know hasn't. Anyway. it can take time it will i i bet it will the uh i did have a question about why we're on the screenwriting um do you ever have to tell people or or have you come up with ways to tell people that they that their script is terrible 
Is that all ever the time. all the time? Yeah. <laughs> I've read some scripts, so I I know this has to come up, uh, but I've never had to tell them. Uh, the thing yeah. about my work, I've been to a lot of other workshops, and I also started going to the uh, years and years and years ago. I started I was going to the UCLA writing program, screenwriting program, and I dropped out because I didn't feel like I was learning there. Mm-hmm. Um, you're surrounded by a bunch of people who've never written a script, and then there wasn't really writing. It was like guest speakers, and we'd sit there in class listening to somebody yap, and I didn't i wanted more of like a hands-on interactive um work like class and i i I started going to these santa monica college classes and those were better than i thought than the ucla classes and um i I was going there and then um my workshop and i've been to a bunch of other workshops what i was saying is that i didn't feel like they were getting the feedback that they should have gotten like people were being too nice, like, oh, your script is great. I'm sitting there going, this isn't great, but I wouldn't say it that way. But I'd be like, you know, the go into micro details about like how you could describe something like a lot of scripts in the scene description. The first word is a name like Molly enters the her bedroom or something or um Instead of that, you could have the cat hops off the bed as Molly enters the bedroom. So you're kind of directing the camera where you're on the cat and the cat jumps off the bed and then Molly enters. Right. But you're That's not saying the yeah. camera moves, pans over to the door, but there's ways so that you're not starting every paragraph of scene description with a person's name. Um Oh, I see what you mean. I yeah. read one of the earlier Batman scripts because I was I was working somewhere where someone had it, and the, I don't remember the details. But it was uh, they had no. It was one of the um, the ones um, with uh, you know the early Batman with um, Michael Keaton. When oh, it, Michael I Keaton. think it was the second one, and there was For- no direction. It was like interior day, you know, factory. That was it. And then it went into the scene. And I was just, that was really, I think they were leaving it for the director to, to just, here's what it's going to look like or something. It because they knew who the director version, was. Which version you read. Because if you read, if you read screenplays online, people think that's, oh, that's the script. But No, this was before that. There was no online. Someone handed me the script. Oh, uh, okay. Because it, it, yeah. it could still be like, there's the writer the script the writer wrote then mm-hmm. there's the script that like the director and the producers and people get involved with and they make changes to get it ready for production and then like the scenes are numbered in that in that script and they get it ready for scheduling and budgeting and then there's the shooting script that has has all these like all the sounds are in uppercase all the props are in up in uppercase there's more detail there's like camera angles in the in the production script and there could be all these other details. There's also like a pre-production script where there's like notes that aren't fin- like scenes that aren't finished all the way. There's all these things you find online. And then there's also after the movie gets made, there could be a published script, which could be completely different in certain ways than what the writer originally wrote. Right. The published script also might be typed up by somebody who doesn't know proper script formatting. And they're just kind of writing it for people who don't, who don't know how a script is formatted, they just kind of write it. There's a lot of people now who read published scripts like they read novels. I've met people who like 
Oh, I read. I yeah, I read that script. I'm like, oh, are you a screenwriter? No, I just like reading screenplays. Hmm. They are kind of interesting because some books read like a screenplay, and some screenplays. Uh, I mean, I've read screenplays that read terrible. Um, I haven't read that many screenplays, but I've read a few that when you read them, they were terrible, but they actually made a really good movie out of it somehow. Well, there should be minimum, like, it shouldn't be novelesque writing in a screenplay. You're not going to go into, like, the textures of the fabric and tell the history of items. Like, you wouldn't, in a screenplay, you wouldn't say, like, she chips the kitchen table that her grandmother bought at a you know at a garage sale when she was little all we're seeing is a table right we don't know the history right. of it unless we're gonna sh have scenes showing her grandmother purchasing the table at a swap meet you know that's how we would learn the history of it but in a screenplay and scene description you don't tell the history of things you don't go into like exactly how the camera should move or like um some people put close up on a drop of blood but in a spec script which is a, a script written on speculation that it's going to sell that's why it's called a spec script speculatively written um you don't put inst like you could say instead of saying a close up on a drop of blood forms on a fingertip you could just say a drop of blood forms on a fingertip and falls to the floor. A cat licks it up. So you're kind of like, it's closing up, a close up, obviously, on the fingertip. And there's going to have to be special effects there. Falls to the floor and then a cat, you just see the cat lick it up. You're just going to write what you see. Um, you're not going to say like, a, f a drop there's a scratch on a fingertip and a drop of blood forms and then the form the drop of blood falls to the wooden floor and then the cat thinks it's something else and goes over and sniffs and considers you know you just don't get into all that stuff you just show what's you say what's seen oh yeah that that makes yeah. sense to me because i've read that too i've read uh, I've had people who were not really screenwriters say you want to read my i worked in tv animation and, and it I had no business reading scripts, but people any in Hollywood, anyone will hand you a script. Um, and you know, I've I've had I've come across that where the description was like, "You don't decide this stuff anyway. This isn't gonna." <laughs> that's, yeah, that's or, not. Well, why did you write that? You can tell yeah. it's somebody who doesn't know screenwriting. If there's in scene description, there's stuff like, as Molly sits on the swing thinking about her childhood when she was running through a field of daisies. It's like visually, all, right, we, right. all we see is Molly <laughs> sitting on a swing. We don't know what's going on in her mind unless there's voiceover where she's, somebody's talking about what she's thinking about. Or we go and we show the scene of her running through the field of daisies or something. So it, there's just all these little technicalities when you're writing a screenplay that you want to... Um, write it very professionally because well oh here's the thing that i should mention um i ended up working at mgm united artists the studio mm -hmm. first in the a friend of mine worked there and she's like hey you want to work here <laughs> and so um 
I was like, sure. And I ended up working first in the publicity department. And one of my jobs was helping to um, arrange the film premieres. And um, then, uh, and also arranged the screenings for the film reviewers. And it was interesting when they showed up, some of them would show up drunk. Some of them would fall asleep during the, the screening and then some would oh, leave. Oh no. But you still read their review the next day. And it's like, that person wasn't even there. The whole they weren't. Time. Oh, they were drunk. There was this one, this one guy reviewer for newspapers and he would famously show up with like two women who if you had to cast prostitutes you would probably dress them that way i don't know if there are prostitutes but he would show up to the screenings with two women pro provocatively dressed is that mm -hmm. a that, that's a sounds sounds who knows today it's probably something wrong with saying that but i, yeah, <laughs> I think you could but, say that i don't think i would ever know it, uh, if a prostitute showed up somewhere because i never recognized them driving no, i mean if you I, saw yeah, these women, if, it was just interesting they dressed very interestingly but this guy mm -hmm. would show up and then when i was working at the studio also i ended up working in the script department um and dealing with their filing system of the scripts back then it was paper scripts now it's all electronic but back then it was printed scripts and they had files and files and files of scripts and there was this one drawer and it had like eight scripts about princess diana um and i asked my boss like why does why do we own so many scripts about princess diana and they're like well we're gonna make this one movie about her so we purchased the other scripts and took them off the market but those writers think we're going to make their script, but they, we only option their script for a year and a half to take it off the market. So nobody else would make it. Oh, that's terrible. I, and that, I've kind of heard those stories before of yeah, screenwriters so, having their script bought for that reason. And then it's, then it, it kind of gets killed. Yeah. And they don't know. They they're like, Oh my God, I optioned my script and good. <laughs> yeah, they find out after the studio puts out the other movie. And like, yeah, and then they didn't make the Princess Diana script. So they spent all that. I don't even know how much money they spent on optioning or purchasing all those scripts and never making any of them and developing their Princess Diana script and never making it. But um, so I saw that angle of the industry. And then I ended up working as the, one of the assistants to John Kelly, the president of United Artists. And um that was interesting he was a super nice guy really super nice guy he at one point he was um he ran paramount or warner brothers one of those and i think it was paramount but i worked for him when he was president of united artists and um he had there were tons of he had these file these long bookshelves um on one wall where it was i don't know how many scripts must have been a thousand or who knows how many were on these shelves and he would at the end of the day and these scripts were like sent to him by agents and managers and famous people he knew and directors and writers he knew and stuff like that and also scripts that made it up that were vetted through the studio system the studio readers read them and then advanced them to his office and then he would look through several scripts every day or maybe a dozen or so every day to see which one he was going to once he was going to read and he would flip through them really quickly and um, one day I asked him, how do you decide so quickly if you're going to read a script or not? 
and he showed me he's like see these big blocks of text and this rambling scene and this dialogue that goes on forever and ever so i'm not going to read that he said if the screenwriter is not going to spend the time to polish their script i'm not going to spend the time to read it oh it interesting. Like, wow that's really good oh, for screenwriters to know that's how fast right. they decide and yeah these writers they got their script into the hands of one of the most powerful people in hollywood ever john Kelly. you could look him up c-a-l-l-e-y um and that's how quickly he was like nope and <laughs> so i saw that going on and i also dealt with some of the studio readers and people like that and then um that's one way i learned you better sharpen your script right or you right it's, it's similar i worked um in the mail room at AN Records. So I went all over the lot as delivering mail. But I found out during my uh, time there that the AR department, which I don't think they have anymore, but in the old days, record companies had the AR department, which was the people who decided if, if um, they're going to sign an artist or not. And they had, it was the same thing with them. They had boxes and boxes full of, at that time, cassette tapes. Um, and, you know, first thing, if it doesn't sound good right away, they're going to, toss it but they had a 10 second they gave it 10 seconds if they got by 10 seconds of the of the song the artist whatever it was they give it another 10 so you had 10 seconds to um yeah. for them to decide if that was if that was going to work or not and it didn't matter who sent them the material that's what it was that's you know. where i'm at now with screenplays is because now i've ran something like 450 workshops Wow. And wow. Um, I wrote my book that's used as a textbook in film schools. I've rewritten scripts for producers and stuff like that. Sometimes when you rewrite, it's something like they need to lower the budget. And there was this one script that I was given an example is this one is they had this scene that was in a restaurant, a busy restaurant with like hustle and bustle, waiters and waiters and other people, like people eating and all this stuff going on in the restaurant. And I'm like, well, this scene is very expensive to film. You're gonna have to do pay for everything here. And in the scene, all that's going on is this right this character tells this character something else, something that they need to know. And like you could film that in the at the valet station outside of the restaurant or even in the parking lot. <laughs> oh, right, right. Gonna go into the restaurant or something like that. And that way we re rewrote it so it took place in the parking lot and cut out thousands and thousands of dollars of expenses for that script there. But, um, oh, I was going to say with my screenwriting workshop, I'm known, people have called me Simon Cowell. Oh, I don't somebody know. I else guess that's good. called me a formatting Nazi uh -huh. um, because I was, I get very picky and some people get mad at me and because they think i'm being too picky about their script i'm like if you think i'm picky or if i'm mean about your screenplay good luck trying to get it into the hands of people who are valid and have years and years of experience like john Kelly. and they're not going to read your script they're not so right. you better open this up and i'm we're here to help you my workshop is everybody's helping each other like all these all the writers are reading each other's screenplays and giving each other advice of how to clear it up. And you're supposed to study the three books that I um, 
in my workshop, it's my book, Screenwriting Tribe Workshop Handbook, and then the Screenwriter's Bible by David Trottier, and the other book by David Trottier, uh, Dr. Format Tells All. Those are the three books. And I tell writers to also pick three books about TV writing and read three books about TV writing. And then also watch YouTube videos about different things about film, like editing and camera work and directing and look up interviews of other successful writers on YouTube and stuff like that. And one thing you shouldn't do is look at a Tarantino script and try to write like that. Tarantino is... Oh, God, yeah, fun. no. Yeah. I, I get that. I totally get that. Yeah. Well, he's super... But you know, his films get financed. He can write any way he wants, and he does, which is fine, and it works well for him. But you don't pick out a Tarantino script and write like he does, because he's not writing a spec script. He's writing a script for himself, and it's already financed, and he gets the actors he wants, and it's all like... so. And there's other writer, writer, producer, directors like that who you don't want to look at their scripts and think, think that's the way to write a script. And don't write like that and come to my workshop and think that I'm not going to say something about it. <laughs> and there was like somebody recently was going through my workshop and the script they were bringing in was super sloppy. And every week she came back with more pages and it was sloppy, sloppy, sloppy. And we would give her feedback and then she would come back the next time with another set of pages. We do 12 pages at a time. And they were still filled with mistakes that we had already corrected her on. And finally, I'm like, you know, I don't know what's going on. You're not studying the books, are you? And she said no, which is the right answer because like, you're not gonna, I'm the guy who wrote the book. so. <laughs> come into my workshop with a screenplay and tell me that you read my book and you applied it to your script because you haven't. But um, she dropped out. And, you know, if she doesn't want to hear what's really going to help her, there's nothing we can do about it. But there's other writers who've, you know, they're really sharp. And one of our big success stories is um, Glenice Mullins. She's a writer in Hollywood. She went to my workshop for a couple of years. She workshopped a couple scripts and then she got on as one of the writers on Lord of the Rings. Never the heard of it. The series. Lord of the what? <laughs> the <laughs> most expensive TV show ever made. But oh, that yeah. one. Oh, that. Yeah. She yeah. Went to my workshop for two years before she got that. And that was her first time. Wow. So That's fantastic. That's amazing. The Lord of the Rings. And That's amazing. Gone. Well, yeah, and those are, those are the kind of scripts that I'm always really curious about because there um there's a lot of time with no dialogue so and i've i always wonder is you know how much of that is the writer and how much of that is the writer producer directors to get you know how much of that is on the page i guess well when you're in a on a tv series you got to write the way the showrunner the executive producer wants the scripts to be written so they have their own styles mm -hmm. so, and do and they still write, use a bible they, when I was the screenwriter's Bible. Um, no, I mean for the show. There used to be show oh, Bibles uh, yeah, back in the day. The show Bible where yeah. they keep records of everything that's in the screenplay. Like in episode three, we find out that one of the characters' fathers died. So that would be a note that would be in the show Bible. So 
the writers have to be familiar with all the different facts of the series that are in the show Bible, because when they're writing scripts, they can't have like episode nine, where suddenly her father comes to visit because her father died in episode three and stuff like that. So, yeah, you, they keep a show Bible and for each show. Um, and the longer the show goes on and on and on, they also might develop their own way of different ways they like their screenplays written. And then if you are working on one of those shows, you have to adjust your writing to what the showrunner or executive producer, who's usually the same person, but not always, um, likes the scripts written. But then you might go work for another show. So then you have to adopt your writing style to that showrunner's. Oh, then you have to change it up. I think because I, yeah. I recently rewatched Breaking Bad and I would always get excited when it was the creator directing wrote and direct the episode but it didn't really matter that much not like the other episodes weren't also good um but you definitely yeah, usually, i could tell like especially with the direction the difference you know oh yeah they also the well, the, the shows usually there's a, a writer's room for each show and usually mm -hmm. there's like several writers who write every episode or you might like be one of the writers might be assigned to write an episode they write it, but then all the other writers and the showrunner go through it and then they like alter it before production. So, um, but that writer gets the credit for that episode, even though it's the whole team that rewrote it and adjusted it before. Oh, it the, yeah, that's really interesting because I, that was, I've always wondered about that. If, you know, how they pick which of the writers is going to be on an episode, like which, which name is going to show up for that episode. That's, that's, there's that yeah. and then there's situations where some people don't want to be on they don't want to be a show they would they don't want to be staffed which is the term for being one of the writers on a tv series or they want to just to get the experience to learn how to make their own show or there's situations where some people they get staffed but they realize they don't really they feel like they're being controlled too much and they're not able to express their creativity enough and they want to write and direct their own material like mike white who um directed white lotus i think it's called that tv series but he started he was a a staff writer on a tv show and he ended up writing his own script for a movie he made a really low budget movie and that's how he broke into film and then he also made another, I forgot the name of that movie. And then it's about a guy who has a crush on a guy, but I don't remember what it was called. And then he wrote another movie called The Good Girl. And that was a really low budget movie, but it starred Jennifer Aniston and Jake Gyllenhaal. And, um, but that's how Mike White, he was working as a staffed writer on a TV show, but also writing his own movie scripts and eventually started making them and broke away from being a, like an employed staff writer and now he's an executive producer on tv shows and stuff like that he must work a lot he must have spent a lot of time writing yeah he's written yeah. mike white you can look him up on imdb.com he actually lives kind of near me i've seen mm -hmm. him walking his dog <laughs> <laughs> i if i see him again i'll say i'll say hi to him but um yeah he's super ma mega successful now and how much, uh, I always ask writers this, how, how, um, how long does it take you to write, a, like how long did it take you to write the, the screenwriter's Bible? And, oh, and I how? The, I wrote this. 
<laughs> the the tri- I mean, the Bible. tribe. I'm sorry. The the, the screenwriter's um, Bible is written by David Trotter. That's, that's David a different one. <laughs> endorsed my book, and that's why this his quotation is on the front cover. Um, but I, I mean, it's notes that I was taking for myself for like 15 years, and then I started like, oh, this could be a book. And then I started the workshop and I got really more serious about turning it into a book for the workshop members. Mm-hmm. It was on Amazon and other people started buying it. And then when I f- first got a message from the University of um, Philadelphia, I think it was, was the first one that contacted me, said, you know, we're, we're going to use this as a textbook for our film school. <laughs> and so that's why I rewrote it. But I mean, it, if you ask me how long I, it took me to write it, I don't really know because it was like kind of like vague over like 15, 17 years before this version got published. Um, yeah, but I, yeah, it's an unusual book. So, so you've also written more recently, um, changed your writing and, and wrote, uh, I don't know about change, but you decided to write two more books. And oh, I have them here because I, I got to I got to peruse them before the show. Dream another dream, and dream your world. Yeah, oh, they're backwards because I I have up my. No, I see it. I see oh, you it. see it right. Okay, I see it correctly. <laughs> Excellent. Does it look backwards? No, yours does. It doesn't. Looks better on, on my your screen. screen. It looks backwards, yeah. but yeah, okay, not. so it works out. Anyway, those two books are. Um, a bit of a departure, but they seem like to me what reading through them. For one, I really like the style. I've always liked this style. You use a lot of quotes, um, and and not only do I like quotes in a book, but they there's a lot of quotes that I've never heard. You know, there's some that I have read. There's a lot by different people that I haven't heard of. So I like that style, and um, it's Editorial. it's almost like a te- it still reads like a textbook, especially since you have a massive uh, index in the back. But it's like a textbook for life almost. Is that is that how you thought of it when you wrote those? I didn't think I was going to write these books. I first, well, the reason I started writing them is I started collecting quotations when I was a teenager. I was just weird, <laughs> and um. Nobody, that's so dark, but I grew up in a house where nobody spoke to me. And I was, oh, yeah, you, I know there's, yeah, a lot of, there's a lot of history here. This is so, (laughs) yeah, I was in a very, very, very dark, screwed up household. And when I was four, um, it started, there was a big change. We were this Irish American family in Ohio, in Cleveland, and it was the, the Kennedy, I mean, just after the Kennedy years or something like that. But um, my parents were having all their children and they're, they're Catholic. And when I was, we were fine. We, my mother actually made money singing for weddings and funerals. So she had her own money. And um, we weren't rich at all. But like there was money coming in from her. And then there was money coming in from my father was a real estate getting in the real estate agent and he was an insurance salesperson and um we lived in a not like nice but a better part of cleveland and on the far west side and um when i was we had by then we had eight children 
And I was the sixth boy. This is getting so dark, but when I was four. That's okay. I mean, yeah. the, here we go. It's the, it's the life story. It's, it's, it's a story. If anybody has some triggering, whatever that word is, um, I should say, when I was four, my father was driving drunk at night and got in a car accident and went through the windshield. And his head hit the utility pole that he crashed into, and it cracked his skull open, and he actually lost part of his brain. And so after that, he survived. And after that, he was not this like, before that, he was this happy guy, like the neighbors like talking to him because he was funny. And um, he had eight children, like things were okay. He grew up really super poor as an only child. So it was cool for him to like be in the situation where he owned a house and he had eight children, he had a wife and he lived in a better part of Cleveland and like he had a job and friends and people like talked to him and he was funny and but after that he was dark i never i saw maybe laugh twice when i was growing up um he was not before the accident he was very playful he would like get out on the floor and play toys with us and draw us pictures of cartoons and um but after that he was not a happy man and um so the reason I started writing my book eventually was I thought, what if I lost, what if when I had children, if I was gone, like either mentally or died or something, I would want to leave some kind of life advice for my children. And so I started writing something that I would eventually give to my child. And um, over the years, I just kept collecting quotations and like writing my thoughts about different things about life and uh specifically to give to a child but it turned into these it got into hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages and i so, was also at the same time helping doctors and people write their books and then uh -huh. writing my screenwriting workshop and yeah so this is i mean these are really your life work thus so far in a, you've been it sounds like you've been working on them since you were a teenager in a sense yeah in a certain way but i didn't know that I, they were going to be both i didn't know it was going to even be two i you know it's just i had so much information and i put them in these two books but they're both about the same thickness i think like 400 something pages but the way i wrote them is and life advice from a thousand people like quotations from throughout history from like everything artists and scientists and writers and philosophers and like poet poets and like singers and famous people and everything from like some politicians even though i try to stay away from them but because <laughs> who wants to listen to politicians but yeah so i mixed their quotations and i didn't want it to be just my opinion i wanted it to be the opinion of like a thousand people about life and um so i wrote and wrote and wrote and over the years and years and years i'm like oh this these are books and so during the pandemic um i had time to finish them and um that's what i was doing while everybody was staring at me and making bread i was like writing the pandemic was that's a whole other story but um so i finished them and i put them out dream another dream came out last summer in 2022 
and Dream Your World just came out this year, 2023. Um, so yeah, it's life advice from a thousand people from throughout history. So I know um, you had a really hard upbringing. I mean, you we you touched on it a little bit, and you said you shared in in the um, the book that you sent me, the little book about yourself that you sent me, the, the information uh, that you were you also had a hard time as a teenager. Was there any certain point that there? that you can point to that kind of turned you around to uh, realizing it was, you know, if changes were going to be made, it was up to you or um, you needed to change your thoughts if you were going to better yourself or any, was there yeah. any certain point or was it over uh, a longer amount of time? I mean, you also, yeah, you also became, uh, started doing yoga and riding. Oh, I didn't even ask about that. You said you rode your bicycle up the coast. The Pacific Down coast. The coast. Down the um, coast. So yeah. where where did you go? My girl, a girlfriend I had moved up to Sausalito. Uh -huh. And um, was, went up there with friends were driving from here to there. And I was friends with her. And she's like, come on up. And I had already been there a few times. but And I helped her move up there. But um, she was with somebody else. And then... So my friends from here are driving up the coast and they had a van and I'm like, hey, do you mind if I go with you and bring my bike? And, you know, we could stay at my ex-girlfriend's place. And then so I went up there and then when I got there, I got um, I just stayed there for a couple of weeks, I think. And I was just biking all over the place. And then my goal was, yeah, to ride down the coast. And I eventually did it. And there's campgrounds on the beaches. And um, so I was doing that and I it took me eight nights and it was great. It was like a great mind body challenge and freeing and um, being on your bike all day and just meeting people and camping out at night. And it was a good, it was, that was awesome. Um, but that was interesting because that was, I wasn't supposed to be able to bike or walk or I had an, a back injury. Um, the first happened when I was 16 when, my one of my brothers punched me in the back really hard um but by the time i was in my early 30s there was a point where i couldn't my legs gave out and they said that i was oh I'm no. kind of really cool. this is dark <laughs> yeah well but, um, i've had yeah. unexplained back problems and i know lots of people have trouble with their back so yeah well, they told me that I would never be able to bike i would never walk without a cane i would never run i would never like and I just didn't accept that. And I pissed off all the doctors in the insurance plan. There were seven doctors and I just kept, one would like, I'm not seeing this patient anymore and I have to go to another doctor in the plan. And then the insurance company called me one day and they said like, um, no, none of the doctors wanna see you. There's, they had seven doctors in the plan. And they're like, you could pick another doctor outside of the plan and let us know which one you wanna go to and we'll cover that. And so I called, um, Wayne Gretzky's doctor, because Wayne Gretzky was in the news for his back injury. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, then he was playing hockey again because they said he would never play hockey, but he's playing hockey again. So I'm like, who was his doctor? So I called the hockey team and I asked them, who's, who's Wayne Gretzky's doctor? So I called him and went, ended up going to him. And he's, all the other doctors said I needed my back fused with iron rods put in and I'm like, I'm not going to do that. And that's one reason they got mad at me. 
And this doctor, Dr. Dillon, told me that I should be really glad I didn't do that. He put me through some really intensive physical therapy. Sometimes there would be like three people bending and pulling me and massaging me and stuff. And I'd have to do all these exercises that were really painful. But eventually I was able to walk and run and bike, and I still do. And uh, so that's how that happened. And I got into doing yoga, and which is a really good thing to do. I do. I like vinyasa flow. There's all sorts of yoga that I don't like, but I like the workout of vinyasa flow yoga. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of different kinds of, of yoga. But And, um, and is yeah. that also when you went to a vegan diet or were you already vegan then? That was also right after, right before the back injury. Um, I didn't know. See, my parents never took me to doctors because um maybe one reason is uh, this is how dark could it go if you're an abused child if you abuse your child you don't want to take your child to a doctor oh yeah yeah they might talk and they my might... parents didn't take me to doctors because you just didn't do that that when i was growing up yeah <laughs> unless my arm was broken they we didn't go to oh, doctors much yeah, yeah there were so there were ulterior motives of like don't Right, but I didn't right. know when I was growing up why I was in so much pain if somebody bumped into me. And I thought other people were also in pain, but I was wimpy. And I was like, but I wasn't weak. I was like a strong kid. I would bike and I would, I had a, always had a garden. I, I was mowing lawn and shoveling snow and raking leaves for the neighbors to make money. But um, I, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know until I was in my early 20s that I, I was born with a genetic kidney disorder. And um, I started being in pain when I was like permanent pain when I was a teenager, like this little gentle, irritating pain in my kidneys. And I didn't know what it was, but I didn't know it was, I didn't even know it was my kidneys. But when I was in my early 20s, I found out that I had kidney disease. And um, sometimes a southern accent kicks out. But uh, I, I lived in Tennessee for a little while. But uh, so I, um, by the time I was in my late 20s, I just was getting worse and worse and worse. And um, they told me I needed a kidney transplant. And I didn't want to do that. <laughs> like, you have to. I'm like, I don't have to do anything. And the doctors got mad at me there for being, I was like this just disagreeable patient. And um, so this one doctor told me that I, the only thing he sees work is if you cut out all animal protein. And I didn't even know what that meant. So um, you, <laughs> what does that mean? What's, what are you talking what? about? And it's uh, like vegetarianism, but it's more than vegetarianism. And um, so I started just eating oh. like rice and beans and stuff. But there was a point where in a, in November of uh, 1990, yeah, November 1990, I was in the hospital and they kind of gave up on me. I signed the thing where like, don't resuscitate. <laughs> the do not resuscitate order. Yeah. Yeah. Don't give me a kidney transplant. I don't know why, but I just felt like that wasn't for me. And um, so in according to doctors, they said I died. I was I was supposed to be in the hospital for like half a day and I ended up in there like five, six days. But um on the sixth morning, um apparently the doctors thought I died and this nurse it was toward the like seven, six in the morning or something, and the 
doctor told the nurse who was on staff, like, don't deal with it, just let the other nurse take care of it. So the other nurse came in, she was going to prep my body to go to the morgue. Oh, man. I'm laughing. But um, so she saw my eyes move. And uh, so after that, I thought maybe I should try what this other doc that to tell how I got home was it took me. Yeah, but I got home and I was like, um, I'm going to try what this doctor said and just eat fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds. Mm-hmm. So I you had feeling- died of kidney disease. That was that would have been the cause of death. <laughs> yeah, you- I guess. Yeah. Kidney failure. Kidney failure. Wow. Well, your kidneys fill to your blood and there's all, like everything you get out of order, like your minerals, your calcium, like your blood, your electrolytes. And I don't know how it works, but um, so I started feeling really good after just eating fruits and nuts and vegetables and no milk, no dairy, no meat, no eggs, no anything. But uh, and then, yeah. I had all this energy and I didn't know what to do with myself. I'd like go biking and biking and biking and biking. But then I injured my back and they're like, no more biking. And, but I, but after my experience with the kidney doctors tell me to get a kidney transplant and I said no, and I got better. Then there are these other doctors are telling me you need to have your spine fused and have poles put in your back and rods. And I felt the same way. Like that's not for me. And, um, and I didn't follow their advice, and I got better. So, yeah. That's actually good. I mean, I know it sounds dark, the, the reasons it's happened, but it ended up good. And I mean, it ended up well. You're hell, you feel good now, right? And you haven't had rods put in your back, which is a <laughs> lifelong oh. struggle. I mean, that doesn't... You don't even know if that's going to work, for one. Yeah. They they recommended my wife have that done like twenty over twenty years ago and she's never had it done. Yeah. And it's well one same. of the reasons yeah. is I didn't have it done. Also I didn't like when they said that to me, I'm no, you're not operating on my back is when I was nineteen. Um when I moved I, I moved by then I was living in California. And there was this boy who I went to high school with who called me when I was living in California saying he's here. Like you're here for what? And he said is he's here because he's got to box up his mother's apartment. His mother had had back surgery and left was left in so much pain that she committed suicide. Oh no! And so when they were yeah. telling me that I needed to have back surgery, I'm like, no, I'm not. No. I'm like you have to. I'm like, I do not have to. No, you don't have to do anything. Don't have to do anything you don't want to do. That- and I still. <laughs> Decades later, I run and jog and bike and do yoga and swim, and I don't have back pain. That's awesome. That is fantastic. And so you just finished these two books in the last, what, two and a half years? These, That's- Dream Another Dream and Dream Your World. Yeah, Dream, Your, Dream Another Dream last year and Dream Your World this year. That seems really fast. I mean, I know you said you had been collecting quotes, but uh, no, I've been working on them for years and years and years. There was several oh, okay. years ago when I mean, more than several years ago when I realized, oh, these are books. And um, so I eventually during the pandemic is when I had time to finish them the way and, I wanted them finished. So, did you do you re- sit down every day and have a writing schedule? 
Where you, <laughs> I'm going to write? No. <laughs> um, my life is so weird. But during the pandemic, um, I was alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would go by, and I don't like being inside. I, I, I'm outside all the time, like somewhere else. But I would take my laptop, and I would bike somewhere, and I'd go write in a park or by the beach and stuff like that or a hiking trail and write or all the parks in Santa Monica and certain parts of LA have free Wi-Fi, So you could write and research stuff in the park or in the, on the beach, the Santa Monica pier has free Wi-Fi, So you could hang out on the pier and write. Oh, nice. That's, yeah, that's there's, a huge advantage. There's beach parks that have free Wi-Fi and sit at a picnic table and beneath trees and write. So I do that a lot. And um, that's what I was doing during the pandemic. <laughs> Biking and riding and jogging and doing workouts on the sand and uh, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. So you're still your main uh, focus or your main thing that you do is the, um, the writer's workshop? My writer's or, workshop that's on Sundays, I organize that. Plus, I, I edit scripts for people. Um, and sometimes it's writers, but I'm really picky about which writers I work with because not, not, I'm not good for every script, especially for every story. And, you know, sometimes I refer them to somebody else a lot. Oh, I see. And it, it always some, seemed like that would take a ton of patience to edit anything. Uh, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then sometimes some producer will want me to edit their script, and um, I've been doing a lot of podcasts lately promote my books. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm writing another book. I did, I forgot about the plant based nutrition book when you started mentioning. It. I'm like, yeah, I wrote that too. I forgot. You did. You wrote. The- <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh yeah, I wrote that book too, and that's 400 pages. And because um, I had learned so much about nutrition, um, writing, helping doctors research and write their books and nutritionists. And I learned so much that I took a bunch of notes and um, I'm like, I could write a better book than they're writing. And um, was my thought. And so I also um, am working on another book, but I don't want to say what it is yet. I don't oh, like okay. That was gonna. That was gonna. It's gonna be one of my questions because it's better when I just say when it's finished. Because that way, like even when I was writing these books, people didn't know, and I came out with them like, "What? I didn't know you were writing a book." I'm like, "Yeah, I don't talk about it. Um, exactly what I'm writing until I'm done." Because I think it kind of disperses energy mm-hmm. that you should oh, okay. be putting into your book, and you also don't want i don't want to hear people's opinion like oh you're writing about that well you should write about this and put this chapter and i'm like no i don't want to hear anybody's opinion about what i should write oh yeah yeah. that makes sense yeah so i don't tell people what i'm writing until after i'm done that totally makes sense absolutely excuse me i'm losing my (laughs) In my voice, the the only I I used to when I started doing these, I did them in my studio, and hopefully I'll get back to that at some point. Um, I should tell you something. Um, during the pandemic, I also had kidney surgery. Oh my gosh! To fix something that wow. they couldn't fix years ago because they had developed all this new technology. Uh huh. So in 2021, I had kidney surgery again, 
And then I almost died of heart failure. Oh my gosh. Oh, <laughs> they spent no. like more than a day trying to keep me alive. But like a week before I had the kidney surgery, I had vocal cord surgery. And I couldn't talk for like three months. And this was all during the pandemic? Yeah. Now, I wonder you were kind of shy about, about saying what was going on during the pandemic. Wow. Oh, God. That wow. Was... So you had, to do, you had to negotiate all of this medical minutia during a time when no one wanted you to go to the hospital, basically. No one wanted you to, no one wanted to yeah, see you. Yeah, during the pandemic, I had yeah. surgery and vocal cord surgery. And then, like, not talking was weird. And I have this app on my phone. I was at a store, and I saw this, this guy who wasn't talking, and he was, like, typing in his phone and showing it to the cashier. And I'm like, I asked him, like, what is that? And he said it's big. Because um, I, I told him I'm getting ready to have vocal cord surgery. It's a, an app called Big, B-I-G. Mm -hmm. And you could type in big words show up on your screen so you could talk to people that way. Well, I was using that when I couldn't talk and I had to go to like the Apple store to the grocery store or something. And I would type what I needed to say. <laughs> and a lot of people think that if you're, if you can't speak, if you're mute, you can't hear because they start talking to you really loudly. I'm like, I can hear you fine. It's my voice. <laughs> that is a and they'd be like, Oh, it's, it's such a natural thing. I don't know why for people to start. It's the same when when someone doesn't speak the language, and we tend yeah. to you know yell at them like that's going to help. We <laughs> <laughs> if we speak louder and slower, suddenly yeah. they speak English. Surprisingly, <laughs> every time I had to go to the Apple store because my computer broke and I brought it in for repairs, and every time I had to go in there, I dealt with someone else, and every single person. I dealt with that. I would talk to me really loud and I would have to tell each one. And there was this one guy who I was, I went in and he stops and he's typing and he's typing and he's typing and his, his, and I typed like, what are you doing? And I showed it like, he's like, I'm writing you a message. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I can hear you You're right here. I, could I don't need to read your message on your phone. Oh but I mean, I had to type that in and tell him. And he was like all confused. He was almost like embarrassed and almost like he pissed. I pissed him off because I embarrassed him. I, like I made a fool of him, but I didn't do anything. I'm like standing there waiting for him to talk to me anyway. And that was for three months, you said? Uh, yeah. Three months you couldn't talk? They first said two months. Uh-huh. But it went on and on and on. And I went in finally for a second opinion to this other doctor. And she's like, no, they shouldn't have told you it was only going to be two months. It's, sometimes it could last six months. Like, oh, no. I, I used to work with someone who would go to quiet camp where they would go and you know, meditate and stuff for a, a week or more. So you, uh, you saved a lot of money there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, just, I, I can't imagine. That's got to be really hard, especially in LA, actually. In a big city, it's even tougher. Well, I, it was the pandemic, so I wasn't around people anyway. But oh, I right. did Oh, and then the workshop, I still ran it, but I had there were other writers who had run it for me, and I would just be there on Zoom, and I would give written feed, type in my feedback to the writers or email it to them or... Um, I just have to answer this quick text. They're okay, not a problem. Oh, okay, but, yeah. All right. Sorry. Well, okay. 
there is there's a i mean you have such you have a, a lot that's happened in your lifetime and a lot that's happened uh with your with your writing we could we could probably talk for a, a lot longer but i know you've got other things to do so um i probably should wrap it up here it's really been great having you on the podcast this is um the uh i'm, I'm trying to switch things up on my background but it really it really doesn't matter so I'm Thank you, that. though, because yeah, this has been fun. I can't believe we've been talking that long already. Um, That's my favorite thing on, to hear. My books are on Amazon, and um, I mostly get feedback from men. My, Interesting. My, Dream Another Dream, there's a lot of stuff about child abuse mm -hmm. issues. It's amazing some of the stuff I've been told by men. There's, I think it's underreported a lot and 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 assumed that girls are abused more maybe they are maybe they're i don't know but um i think there's a lot more m male uh, boy abuse going on than people want to think about probably it's way I think more that, yeah that seems that that makes sense because it a man males especially young males I mean, females, yeah. it's the same. It's it's also underreported, but males even more so. You're not, that's not supposed to happen to you. And yeah, you're manly. It's very, yeah. It's, if that somebody did something to you that you were that, yeah. that you could have, like, but you're a child. You're thinking as a child. You're dealing with life as a child. You can't deal with certain things, especially if they're being done to you by adults, especially yeah. if they're being done to you by adults who you're supposed to be trust more than anybody else in the world. And they're doing things to you and yeah there's a lot of um i mean there's a lot of under report under reporting on male child abuse of all sorts yeah that makes that totally makes sense and if people want that there's the book is on amazon is there anywhere um well you can send me send me some uh, any information about maybe your workshop and other stuff you want me to put in the show notes we'll put it on in there we'll include it all um so thanks again. Thanks for being on. And uh, I'll just say you've been listening to Were You Still Talking? This is Joel Albrecht. And my guest today has been Daniel John Carey. His latest books, Dream Your World and Dream Another Dream, are available now, as well as his other his uh, book about veganism, the uh, his screenwriter's book. A lot of stuff, a lot of stuff was covered today. Thanks so much for coming in. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember to uh, share it and maybe follow the show. I don't know. Anything you want to do. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. And thanks for being on once again. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah, you're so welcome. As I always say, be good to yourself. <laughs>